We've all been there, or if you've not been there, you're gonna be there, okay? That's the tension between work and family. And I use the word tension for a reason. I don't say that the whole family work thing, I wouldn't say that it's a problem that you can solve. It's certainly not a problem that you can solve. It's more of a tension that you manage and there's no such thing as balance, okay? Let me just break it to you and me, okay? There's no such thing as balance, why? Because well, your life isn't static and your job isn't static and your marriage isn't static and your kids aren't static and your health isn't static. It's dynamic, it's fluid. And you know that you've always got to be in that tension of work and family. What happens if you only work? Have you met those men? They tend to be men, right? They only work, they don't have much of a family to come home to. Here's what you need to know. This is what they've shown us. That once you get over 50 hours a week, three things happen. You begin to, your, your IQ drops. If you start working more than 50 hours a week, you get so stressed, you get so focused, your IQ drops on average by 13 points. Here's what happens if you work more than 50 hours a week. Uh, the romantic relationship in your life almost definitely struggles. Here's what happens if you get over 50 hours a week you begin to have long-term health problems if you keep it up. So 50 hours, is it's, there's something a breaking point there. So we know, look, look, if you only work, you won't have much of a family to come home to. But if you only spend time with your family, you must have a trust fund or something. I don't know, we're jealous of you, okay? Uh, we don't know how you do it. But if you only spend time with your family, you're not gonna be able to provide for them. So here's what you do. This is what you do, and this is what you and your wife or you and your husband just, and you have to talk about this constantly, your whole marriage to get it right, is you go, what season are we in and what is the rhythm? That's what you say. And work understands this. Why do you have paternity leave? Why do you have maternity leave? Because we finally figured this out. It's like, well, you're in a unique season, newborn baby, and you're gonna need a unique rhythm and let's work that out. It's like, well, you're gonna have to do that the rest of your life. You're gonna have to, certain jobs. It's like, I'm a landscaper, you might say, okay? If you're a landscaper, okay, you just say, hey, Honey, to your wife, the, the summer is going to be a uniquely busy season. I'm having this conversation with my family. I'm like, look, we're getting into this building. The month leading into the building, the month in the building, the first few months after the building, it's going to be a uniquely busy season. So I'm trying to create rhythms now that are healthy. And I'm trying to say, look, there are different seasons that are busy at work. There are different seasons that are busy at home. Forget the idea of balance, start working with attention, talk about it all the time, and you need to figure out what to do. now. If you'll turn to Ephesians 6, Paul addresses this topic. In Ephesians 6, 1 through 9, Paul puts family and work right next to each other. By the way, you know, this is a generational conversation. So if you talk to the builders and the boomers, and I love the builders and the boomers, okay? The builders are like, or the boomers are my dad's generation, like those in their 60s, and the builders are the generation after that. And guess what? Were they talking about the tension between work and family? Like, no, I'm too busy working, right? They're not doing that. What's interesting is the younger generation, Anyone like under 40 has unrealistic expectations about what their life is going to be like. Try hiring people under 40. They have certain expectations about how much time they're going to have off, about how, much, how, how they're gonna be able to go to the dance recital at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday. I mean, unrealistic expectations about how much maternity and paternity leave, unrealistic expectations about being able to quote unquote work from home, wink, wink, okay, all that kind of stuff. And so we have, to, we have to constantly talk about these things. Now, I'm gonna read this to you. We're gonna talk about two topics today. We're gonna talk about uh, family and work, and they both show up in Ephesians 6. So here, look at here. Children, okay, this is every parent's favorite verse. Here it is, parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. And all the parents go, say it again, Kyle. I love it, yes. <laughs> Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Why? For this is right. And then he quotes the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, 
and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Notice, we're gonna talk about family, we're gonna talk about work. Notice first that Paul assumes a multi-generational church. Isn't that interesting? He assumes that there are children and he addresses those children. I told you a couple weeks ago, he addressed, addressed the women and the wives. And that was unique in that culture, but then to address children and not, by the way, just boys, there's a different word for boys. He's talking to boys and girls. He addresses them together and speaks to them because Paul assumes a multi-generational church. And by God's grace, I don't know how it happened. I don't know if we could do it again, but we have in here a multi-generational church. We have from diapers to dentures in this church. Praise the Lord, okay, we got it all. And that's exactly what you want. You want these, someone's clapping, dentures, yes. <laughs> I love it, amen. Um, so what you want in a church is what you want in a home is you want the strength of the young with the wisdom of the old. If you just have young people, it's a nightclub, a lot of passion, a lot of emotion, a lot of energy, staying up too late. If, if it's just old people, it's a nursing home, right? It's like, why isn't anyone visiting and we're all getting ready to die, okay? Now it's like, we don't want either of those, okay? We want the strength of the young with the wisdom of the old. So Paul addresses this and he, or, and he addresses children. Multi-generational church. Second, I want you to see this, look here. In, in verse five, bond servants, obey your earthly masters, with fear and trembling. So he's gonna talk about work. With a sincere heart as you would Christ, by the way, Jesus is gonna be mentioned four times when talking about work. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he, that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. So we're gonna to to talk about work in a few minutes, but I've gotta talk about another topic that you see in that, okay? See the word bondservant there? Okay, it's literally in the Greek. I don't do this a lot, but I'm gonna do it today. It's literally in the Greek, it's the word doulos. What does doulos mean? Slave. So here's what we have to talk about for just a few minutes, slavery, which is obviously a very sensitive topic, rightly so. I want you to hear me say four things about slavery because the reason I'm not passing this over is we just we don't pass anything over the Bible. If the Bible speaks about it, we talk about it, okay? So get ready for this. Four things I want you to know about slavery. Number one. Hear me say all these. You have to hear me say all of them, okay? First thing, slavery is always wrong in every form, okay? And it needs to be condemned everywhere it's found in every form that it's found. Hopefully that was clear. Slavery is a sin, point one. Point two, slavery that Paul's talking about is different than what you're thinking about. If you're thinking about Civil War slavery or American South slavery, different. How's it different? I'm glad you asked. The first is it wasn't race-based. About actually a third of the Roman world at this time were slaves and it had zero to do with race. So it wasn't race-based. Secondly, this is gonna be a surprise to some of you who don't know this. In many cases, it was voluntary. In fact, you'll see certain translations, they'll translate this instead of bond servant, they'll, they'll translate it indentured servant. Because listen, I mean, lots of, I mean, human history is horrible. Lots of terrible things happen. And for a long time, there was no social security, there was no safety net. So it's like, here's what people would do. It's like they would be in debt and then they would go and they would sell themselves voluntarily into slavery for five to seven years to pay off the debt. Or, you know, people have these terrible lives and they're orphans or they're widows and, you know, they're, what, am I, what am I going to do? Or they're from poor families. And often they would go to someone and they would say, can I be your slave? Basically, translation for a lot of us, can I be your apprentice? Can I do a long-term internship with you for free? Where I work for you for free, but I learn a skill and so when I'm gone, at a certain amount of time, then I'll start my own business, I'll start my own thing. First thing I want you to hear, oh, let me tell you, sorry, the third thing about slavery that's different. Um, it was not lifelong for most people. There were ways back then that Roman slavery was talking to, to get your freedom, gain your freedom, and many people did that. So what I want you to hear me say, slavery is sinful, 
must be condemned in every place, in every form that it's found. Secondly, this slavery is different than the slavery you're thinking about in American context. Third, why did we have slavery until 200 years ago? Have you ever asked that question? I don't know how much you guys know about history, but slavery is a normal part of every civilization that has ever existed in all of human history until 200 years ago. Why? Hear all of this, please. Because for most of human history, to every person on the planet, slavery made sense. Sinful sense. By the way, this is why you don't want to, don't listen to people like Sam Harris and those atheist types that go, all we need is reason. Let me give you reason. Do you want reason for a second? Here's reason. What's unreasonable about this? I win the war, I enslave everybody. You don't think that makes logical sense? That made logical sense to everybody forever, everywhere. What isn't logical about if I'm more powerful than you, I will enslave you? That's the definition of logic. Okay, here's what you understand. It was only the Bible. This is well documented by secular people who hate it. <laughs> only the Bible set people free from, what, why, are, why did slavery end? Here's a very simple answer that secular historians write down. Because of evangelical pastors and evangelical politicians, William Wilberforce, of who was the first and foremost. Because guys, the only reason that you recoil at slavery is because you're haunted by the Judeo-Christian worldview, whether you know it or not. It's not immediately obvious. It has to arise out of Scripture that every person is made in God's image. It was Christianity and the Bible that gave the intellectual and theological framework for slavery to disappear and for slaves to be set free. It's like, how do you, I mean, do you think people naturally, do you think people naturally care for needy people? Do you think that's a, it's like, no, that's a Christian idea. Where do you think we get this idea of justice, giving people what they're due? Where do we get the idea of loving our neighbor as our, it's like, it's all Christian. And it was the Bible with the gospel at the center that is the reason we don't have slavery as the norm in the world anymore. Amazing. So we have to talk about work for a little bit. So a couple things here I want you to notice. He talks to bond servants, think employees. He talks to masters, think bosses. That's how we're gonna practically apply this today. And there's a couple things I want you to understand. Okay, first of all, and some of you need to hear this, especially in our culture, work is a good thing. How do we know work's a good thing? Well, Jesus Christ worked. Jesus Christ swung a hammer and worked a blue collar job for the first 30 years of his life. It's like, what? You wanna talk about honoring work? Uh, God shows up in the scriptures and what's the first thing he's doing? Working, he's very busy. <laughs> Creates the whole world in six days and then rests. You know, and, and women love when, when they hear this, but and then what does God do with Adam? Gives him a job before he gives him a wife. All the women said, amen. Work's a good thing. Now, here's a couple things. So, and Paul talks, Paul only always talks about work as a good thing. Here's a couple things that people don't often understand. Labor creates leisure. Lots of young people do not understand this, right? And they look at older people who have more time and have a second home and are able to take longer vacations and are able to retire and they want all that now. It's like, it doesn't work that way. I can tell you how it works. This is how it always works. A young person trades in their youth for one skill set or maybe two that they're good at. And then they use that skill set to make money. 
And then once they've done that for a long time, they're able to rest. That's how it works. We live in a time where people want leisure before labor. It doesn't work that way. It's labor creates leisure. The other thing that people have a problem with, the modern mind today, is there's a sacred secular divide. You have to have a sacred view of your work. That's why he's talking about Jesus as Lord of the workplace. Here's what tends to happen. You tend to view this, what we're doing here, as sacred, even though it's in a warehouse. You're like, well, this is a church building, and he's a pastor, and that's the Bible, and it's Sunday morning, and this is sacred. Or people go, hey, I'm going to sequester like 30 minutes. If you're you know, a good Christian, you sequester 30 minutes, and you read your Bible, and you journal, and you pray, and you, you know, it's holy time. Or people think, oh, my discipleship relationship, my community group, you know, that's sacred. It's like, well, nothing is not sacred, or everything can be sacred if you see Christ as the Lord of it. So what, what he does, here's what Paul does, because I gotta spend a lot more time on parenting. Paul flips the script for bosses and employees by saying, here's how you transition. You need to see Jesus as Lord. So he's working on the motive. So here's another question you might wanna ask. Why do people work? And it's okay, it's church, but just give the real answer. People work to make money, and that's okay. And it's always, and always has been, and always will be the number one reason people work. In fact, the definition of a job is something I wouldn't do if you weren't paying me. So I'm like, that is the definition of my job. <laughs> and here's how you know that you're working to make money because some of you already know the day you're gonna stop working. I've talked to people before. When I'm 67, I've talked to our financial advisor, when I'm 67 and a half, it's like, what are you saying? You're saying at that point, I won't have to work for money. My money will work for me. Well, praise the Lord. The second reason people work is development. It used to be I want the corner office. Now it's, you know, I, I want to get better at something. I want a skill set. I want to be able to work from home. I want new titles. I want new authority. I want uh, a new position. I want more autonomy. People work to be developed, okay? Um, a third reason people work is, is relationships. And this is actually very, this may surprise some of you. Um, relationships are even more important in blue-collar work. The reason for that is blue-collar work is so hard. They, they, they have done studies that say that blue-collar workers joke with each other way more than white-collar workers do. Why? because the jobs are so hard, they can't make it through the day if they don't joke around all the time. Relationships are unbelievably important, and, and people often stay in jobs they hate because of relationships they love. The fourth reason that people work is for vision. It's like, well, I, you know, and that, that's what the millennials dream is, the I, I wanna work for a company that's changing the world. It's like, well, maybe, good luck, um, <laughs> right? Probably you won't, but that's okay. Um, and, uh, and so there's vision, there's mission, I'm excited about what we're doing, the product we're producing, the need we're meeting, praise the Lord. Um, Paul says, this will change your life if you see Jesus as your boss. This is, here's the whole message of six, five through nine. You can have a different boss with the same job, Jesus. You can, while you're sitting in your seat right now, you can transfer bosses without transferring jobs. Because what Paul is addressing is he's addressing bosses and employees, and he's saying that each has their temptation. There are two main temptations when it comes to work. They're two of the seven deadly sins, greed and sloth. What he's saying, I'm generalizing, but it's mostly true. What is the temptation of a boss? To overwork and underpay his employees, obviously. Now we're not saying, a good boss wouldn't do that because the employees won't stay, it won't work. It's a short-term strategy, but that is, the, that is the temptation of a boss. Which by the way, if you're working for a boss, you have to learn how to negotiate. The chance that your boss is going to give you a raise just cause, just cause, just because you think you're doing a good job, very small chance. You have to learn how to negotiate. You have to learn to ask for it. You have to learn, to, you have to learn how to say to your boss something like this, look at these five things that I'm doing that weren't being done. Isn't this amazing? And I will do a lot more of this. Can we talk about what could be different for me? You have to do that stuff. And young people don't know how to do that and they're afraid to do it. You have to do it. What is the temptation of employees? 
the temptation of employees is to try to see if they can keep getting paid for doing less and less work. This is why during the Great Resignation, which was during COVID, there was the whole, have you heard of the phrase quiet quitting? Some of you, Google it, not now please, uh, but Google it later. Um, quiet quitting was, was a phrase that basically said people, because I, I know you're working from home, right? And, and, and everybody's you know, on Zoom calls and all that kind of stuff. And so people are trying to see how little work can I do without anyone noticing I'm doing a lot less. He's saying, look guys, if Jesus is your boss, you're gonna be a better employee because your Lord and Savior is your boss and you're working as if for him. And that's gonna make you work hard. And what is the, what, what's the danger of bosses? The danger of bosses is to think you ain't got no one over you. That you're some island. That you're the man on top of the hill or the woman. It's like, no, 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 no. Every boss bows to the greater boss, Jesus Christ. And it's good for him to do it and he'll be a better boss because of it. Now, a couple things that I want people to understand. If you are an employee, here's what you need to know. Every study that's ever been done on employees versus bosses tells us this one thing. Bosses are more stressed than employees. You need to know that about your boss. Because I know you're an employee. It's like, who are you worried about? You. And making sure your boss is happy. Who's your boss worried about? Everybody underneath her. And if you have more than like three or four people, then everybody, then you know, somebody's always not doing well. Some of you need to understand that you are going to be future bosses. You know, we have, we're a multi-generational, socioeconomically diverse church. But we have a lot of what I would call the emerging affluent in our church. You're going to be the boss one day. And praise the Lord, be a good boss. But here's what I would say to that. I, I was with a pastor recently, he's in his 70s. And I wanna be like him. You know, he's a great guy, successful, fruitful. And I said to him, I want, give me some advice. He's toward retirement. And I said, tell me what I should do. I'm still a young man, you know, all this stuff. And he said, um, be very kind on your way up. You'll meet the same people on your way down. Have you ever wondered why it's hard for people who, certain bosses who lose their jobs to get other jobs? I don't know all the reasons. It's like, dude, be very kind on your way up because you will meet the same people most likely on your way down and they will remember how you treated them on the way up. The word to all of us is that work for most of us who have full-time work, you're working 40, 50, 60 hours a week, work will be the main place of witness and worship for you. So you're gonna have to redefine what you think worship is and what you think witness is because you're gonna spend a lot of time there. And the number one witness at your work will be the quality of your work. It's the doorway. It's, it's what mercy ministry is for the church, right? Mercy ministry is we meet these needs in our city and it legitimizes what we're doing because we really do care about the people and it gives us the place to speak. It's like, well, that's what your work is at work. It's like, look at how, look at my integrity. Look at the quality of my work. Look at my ability to be a part of a team. Everybody wants to invite me to be a part of what they're doing. Now I have the ability to open up my mouth, which here's what this means. If you are a lazy worker, please do not tell anyone you go to Two Cities Church. <laughs> Guys, we have to talk about parenting for even a longer time because work is part-time and work is full-time, but parenting is lifetime. If you'll go back to verse one, I wanna to talk to us about parenting for a little bit. And this is an important conversation uh, for us to have. And here's why. So a couple weeks ago, when I talked to the wives, the women, here's what I tried to do. I want you to know what I was trying to do there. I was trying to say to women, everything their husband doesn't know how to say, can't say, won't say, doesn't know, if he should say it, is afraid to say it, okay? I try to say all of that. And then last week, I tried to say to the men all the things that I think their wives wish they could say, wanna say, can't say, won't say, don't know how to say. But when parenting, why am I gonna just, we're gonna talk about parenting for a while, and why? 
because there's no talking to people about their kids. Have you noticed this? Have you ever just watched somebody and it's just like a train wreck watching them parents? Or you see their kids and you're like, those kids are miserable. And they're, hor- they're little tyrants walking around. Right? And it's like, you can't, it's just like the unwritten, there's a couple different unwritten rules. And one of the unwritten rules is don't talk to me about my parenting. It's like, really? Never? And the reason that you can't talk to people about their kids is because technically what a kid is is an extension of you. So it's impossible to talk about somebody's kid without them feeling like you're talking about them, in part because you are talking about them. So what we're going to do for a while this morning with our time left is we're just going to talk about parenting because we need to, because it takes a church to raise a Christian. And it's not going to be easy. Now, now here's, here's the thing. I, I heard a story about a pastor. He was a single pastor. I mean, single. He was not married. Takes over this small church. And you know how small churches are. The, the deacon board's running everything, and they're telling the pastor what to do. And so anyway, so the deacon board, it's terrible. Um, the deacon, the deacon board tells the pastor, uh, hey, I need you to teach a class on, uh, Sunday school class on parenting. He's single. You gotta have kids. Okay, I'll teach it. So he teaches it, calls it the Ten Commandments on Parenting. Doesn't go over very well, okay? A couple years later, he gets married. He has a couple kids. He says, you know, I think I need to teach that class again. So he teaches it. He's a little more humble. He's got a little bit, you know, more time under his belt, a couple kids. Renames the class Five Principles on Parenting. People seem to re- respect it. They get, okay. Ten more years goes by. He's got a couple teenagers. He's seen a lot of life. He decides, I need to teach this class one more time. Titles of Sunday school class, A Few Random Thoughts on Parenting. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of how I'm speaking to you today. Um, Jim Gaffigan, that comedian, he said, by the way, if you're here and you you don't know what it's like to have a kid, Jim Gaffigan says, if you don't know what it's like to be a parent, imagine you're drowning and someone throws you a baby. (laughs) (laughs) That's the experience of parenting. no, we have, to, we have to talk about how parenting has changed. This is very important to understand um, because the way that things are now, obviously, are not the way that things have always been. And, and, and as soon as I tell you how parenting is gonna, has changed, you're going to go, you're exactly right. And, and then you've got to ask the question, well, then how is this affecting how we're parenting? So let me just give you them. How, how has parenting changed? The first way parenting has changed is we're having way less kids. I mean, way less kids. So you, you have to understand that since 1950, the size of the average American home has doubled and the family has been cut in half. So you go, go back 50 years, average home is 1,200 square feet, average family is six with four kids, two adults, two adults six, okay? What is it today? Flip it. It's a 2,400 square foot house is average now, and only four people live in it instead of six. Now here, here's what's interesting. For almost all of human history, women were pregnant from the time they got married till they, had, till they went to menopause. And they had 12 to 18 kids, half of whom died. I just, that, there's no doubt, that's, that was human experience and it was horrible have half your kids die. But you have to understand that people used to have a lot more kids than one or two. Right, like what happens, if you ever see somebody with more than four kids, what do you think? What Mormon church do they go to? <laughs> the second thing that's different is that we are having kids way later in life, and that's a, that means a lot. So instead of having kids at you know, 18, 19, 20, 21, we're having you know, our first kid at 38. And so then you'd ask this question, well, what, what, what happens when I have one or two kids and I start having kids when I'm 35? Your kids mean way more to you than they would have if you had them earlier. And strangely, you have an economic reality that you did not have when you were 22. So you have one kid 
This is why you have fragile parenting, overprotective parenting. I will send you everywhere, make sure every need is met. I will get, get behind you and give you everything you've ever wanted. The third thing is both parents are working. How many homes in America have a stay-at-home mom full-time? 14%. We're not arguing ones, but I'm, I'm just telling you the reality. Here's what we know. Without, with, with less stay-at-home moms, who does it affect? Nonprofits, school districts, neighborhoods. Because the stay-at-home mom was the engine of those three things for decades. And they're, they're just different without mom. And mom who has the time to give to them. And what's happening, and we're seeing this in our church, uh, is two couples, they're both working, the wife gets pregnant, then they have to have this conversation. It's something like, well, what do we do? Do we have enough money to, are we a nanny family? Are we a nice daycare family? Are we an okay daycare family? Do the grandparents, can we, can we coerce the grandparents to get over here? Do you work part-time? Do I work part-time? I mean, it's, it's, it's like the first time you grow up in marriage. It's very hard on people. The fourth thing is grandparents aren't around. I know, you know, you went to, isn't it great? You went to school in Chicago and then you hung out in New York City and, you know, now you live here, but your parents live in Ohio. And we live in this transient world, which is very strange. And it's a blessing and all that. But so we live far away from our grandparents, which basically means a couple things. It means parenting is not twice as hard without grandma and grandpa. It's probably five to 10 times as hard. And you don't know that. If you have your grandparents here, you're really blessed. Um, or your parents here as the grandparents. Because what happens is you, there's no date night, not when you're young can't afford $15, $20 an hour for a babysitter plus date night. Are you kidding me? So it affects the marriage. There's nobody in your life who actually might speak into your parenting. Because I know the, the, the parents do it, probably the grandparents do it too much, but there's nobody. And they would be the only ones. And then there's child-centered home. Have you seen this? It's like the, the child is the center of the home, which is why children are anxious. One of the things you want to tell your kids is, let me tell you the center of this home is Jesus Christ. And then let me tell you the center of the home is after Jesus Christ me and your mom. And I promise you, your kid, if he's seven or eight, will go, oh, thank God. I don't want to be the, I'm seven. I'm going to be a mess if I'm the center of this home. And then there's passive and permissive parent. Have you heard of gentle parenting? Some of you are doing this, but. It, it, <laughs> so whatever, you know, we talk afterwards, but I just, it's just, gentle parenting is, it's this, I know what this is. This is the, you know, let's just, you know, let's just have a conversation with Timmy. You know, Timmy doesn't want to get car. Well, Timmy, don't you want to just see grandma and grandma? It's like, no, Timmy doesn't care. Timmy can't be reasoned with. Timmy needs authority. So here's the thing. Um, we have to ask, what's the goal of parenting? And if you're an Asian American, what's the goal of parenting? Success. I respect it. At least they know what they're doing. It's like my kid, I saw this at Duke. It's like, I saw people, you would not believe the amount of money people spend just to get their kids into Duke. I'm talking hundreds of thousands of dollars. I'm talking these kids from the moment that their preschool was selected. They knew where they were going. And getting into Duke is the same for the, for the average family that gets their kid into Duke. It's the same thing as getting into heaven. It's like, we've worked so hard for this. The goal of Asian Americans is for their kids, as a, as a general rule, for to be successful. What's the average goal of the average American for their kid? Come on. I want my kid to be happy and healthy. It's like, that's not a goal. I mean, no one wants the opposite. I want my kid unhealthy and unhappy. It's like, no. It's a shallow, we're just shallow. You got to look in the mirror sometimes and just go, I'm shallow. 
Because here's, here's, here, here's the goal, the goal of parenting, because by the way, it says children obey your parents and the Lord. I'm giving you a Christian view of parenting, which you won't hear anywhere else. Christian view of parenting says this, the goal of parenting is the salvation of your child. That's the goal. And it's a hope and it's a prayer and God's got to move. But I tell you, this happens all the time. I'm talking to someone and they're, you know, their son's addicted to pornography and their daughter, or it's a daughter, and, you know, she doesn't want to date any Christian guys and she doesn't want to go to youth group. And she doesn't want to read her Bible. And we can't figure out what's wrong. It's like, I know what's wrong. Do you want, do, can, we, has any, can anyone say what's wrong out loud in here? It's like, let's say the part that no one wants to say out loud. Your daughter's not a Christian. And sometimes when you say, people will cry because they know it. And they didn't want to say that part out loud. They'd rather just say, she's struggling and I don't get it because she was baptized when she was, it's like, Stop, not a Christian. That's the issue. We have to diagnose the problem if we're gonna find the solution. What does God use in the salvation of our children? Well, thankfully the Bible tells us. In the Old Testament, it says, blessed is the man who fears the Lord. And then you know what the phrase that follows that phrase the most in the Old Testament? Blessed are his kids. What is the number one thing God will use from you in the life of your children. It's parents that fear God. You have to, please listen to me, you have to fear God. Some of you need to hear this. You need to fear God more than you fear your kids. Just be honest. We're in church, I know it's no place to be honest. We're gonna be honest for a second here. You can be afraid of your kids. You can be afraid of your six-year-old daughter because she'll cry and she's smart and she'll whine and she's it's like, you gotta like get, you know, you go into your closet and you go, she's six, I'm 30. She's six, I'm 30. You know? I can do this, I can do this. Psych yourself up because I, I promise you, if you're afraid of your six-year-old, you will be terrified of your 16-year-old because they only get bigger and they only get smarter. And so here's the thing. With parenting, we, um, lost my train of thought. <laughs> I apologize, guys. I'm all over the place here. I, I've got, um, I'm, I'm going to get there in a second. Oh, the goal, I'm sorry, the goal of parenting. I'm like, I lost it for a second there. Um, the goal, so the goal of parenting is the salvation of your child. You have, oh, this is another thing. You have to fear God more than you fear the culture. So some of you are going to make some decisions and your neighbors are going to raise their eyebrows and, you know, and they're not going to understand. And you've got to say, oh, here's another big one. You've got to fear God more than you fear your parents. Some of you are the first, you're the first generation trying to raise Christians in the home and you're making some decisions and your parents aren't going to like it because you you're trying to do Christmas a little different. You're trying to do Easter a little different. And you got to say, you know what? You're schooling a little differently than they did. And you just got to say, I fear God more than I fear my parents. The first goal of parenting is the, is the uh, salvation of your child. The second goal of parenting is the socialization of your child. This is very important. So and where do I get this from? Well, what does the Bible say? That here's the desire of parents, that our kids would obey and it would go well with them. The desire that Jesus has for our kids is that they would be salt and light. So please hear me, because most people do not understand this. The first goal of parenting is the salvation of your child. The second goal of parenting is the socialization of your child. What do I mean by that? Here's what you want for your kid. This is the way it should feel. I want to send my kid into the world so that everywhere he or she goes, everyone likes them. 
What's the opposite of that? You've met, I've met kids that are the opposite of that. Right? Have you ever had that? It's like, hey guys, you know, should we have Junior over to sleep over? No! He's a terrorist. We, right? No! You, what other friends do you have, right? And your daughter's like, you know, can, can, can Sally come over? It's like, oh no, Sally only eats chicken nuggets and, and, and dipped in ketchup. And they're a certain type of chicken nugget. I'm not saying, it's like, no! It's like, whose fault is that that the kid only eats chicken nuggets? Mom and dad, 100%. You know, you don't want that. I've seen this. It's like, oh no, we don't want Timmy on our baseball team. I mean, this is real stuff that no one talks about. You do not want the kid that no one wants to be around, and that happens. No one wants him in the class. No one wants him in the youth group. No one, no one really, I mean, we'll do you a favor, but no one wants to invite him to the birthday party. And every teacher just smiles at him while they resent him and can't wait for him to move on to the next class. That happens. I want you to hear me. That happens. And how does that happen? It's the parent's fault. And how does that happen? Well, here's what happens. When two people get married, they make one normal person. Some of you go, wow, that makes sense. Yes. So you've got your idiosyncrasies and he's got his idiosyncrasies and you know, you've got your family background and he's got her, his family background. And when two people get married, they make one kind of normal person. And that normal person is a mirror to the child of what the world's like. And so if you don't like something, the chance that everybody your kid ever meets won't like it is almost 100%. So part of your job as a parent is just to constantly tell your kids when they're doing things that you don't like. You're gonna have to get used to that. It's like, don't eat that way. Why? Because I don't like it and either does your mother. Which means everybody that you ever eat with won't like it. <laughs> it's that simple. But parents don't do that. And then they send their kids into the world and people who love and like him less have to deal with him. It's not good. So we need to talk about two kids for a little bit. So it says to the kids, it says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. There are three reasons children are to obey. It's right, it's written, it's rewarded. Children, if we can talk to the kids just for a minute, you obey your parents because it's right. Here, here's what it's talking about. The Bible talks about, how's, what's the best way to say this? The Bible talks about children obeying their parents as what's called, what theologians call natural law. Now what is natural law? Natural law is what I can know without a Bible. So there's special revelation. Oh, Jesus is the only son of God who came and died for my sins. Well, I'm not gonna know that without the Bible. But I can look at any family. What you, here's what Paul's saying. Any person from any culture can look at any family and go, those parents should, those kids should obey those parents. It's obvious. The problem is we live in a world in which obedience seems strange. Look, my family is a perfect example of an imperfect family. You know, my kids aren't perfect by far, uh, and I'm not either, and, and we, they disobey, and it's embarrassing, and all that kind of stuff. We're working on all that. But I say that to say, it's not infrequently, I promise you, it's not infrequently that we go out to a restaurant, and the waiter and waitress talks about how well-behaved our family is. It's like, what do we do? It's like, well, we taught our kids to shake people's hands and look them in the eye, and we taught them to, you know, say please and thank you, and we taught them, they're, they're, they're 11, 9, and 7. It's like, you order your own food, you know, and speak loud enough so people can hear you. And then we say, no screens at dinner. We don't hate each other, <laughs> you know, and that's something, I guess. You know, and so afterwards, people are like, wow, well, your kids are so well-behaved. It's like, this should be normal. Like, you know, you, you, some teenager, and his, his dad says, be home at 10, and he's home at 10, and everyone's like, whoa, 
What happened? It's like, it should be normal. The second thing is it's written. Paul basically said, look guys, this made God's top 10. The Bible talks about, about this in such an important way that it's interesting in Romans 1, Romans 1 talks about the downfall of society. And a lot of people read Romans 1 and they think the downfall of society is sexually deviant behavior. Because that's about verses, I think 26 to 28 talks about sexually deviant behavior. You know, God gave them over and God gave them up and all that. Keep reading. Because if you pass verse 28, you'll come down to the last section of Romans chapter one, which talks about the cultural collapse, the bottom and bankruptcy of culture, and guess what it is? Children disobeying their parents. I mean, think about it. What's the difference between an unstable society and a society in which the vast majority of kids don't obey their parents? It's the exact same thing. And so the third thing is it's rewarded, basically, Paul wants us to understand that disobedience is dangerous and that if we want our life to go well as kids, the best thing for us to do is to obey our parents. So he says it's rewarded, it's written, it's right. But then when you talk about honor, because it says honor your father and mother. Now, here's what Christians, it took us a while to understand this, but here's what Christians have understood. We obey while we're in the home, we honor all of our life. So this is a word to some of you, you need to honor your parents. Okay, and this is actually really important and some of you, you're not doing this and I wanna, I wanna talk, talk to you about this for a few minutes. How do you honor your parents? Number one, don't forget them. Even if they're dead, I still honor them. You can honor your parents while they're dead. But if they're alive, don't forget them. Do math. I've done this math before. It's like, well, say your dad's 70. Well, do you know how long the average man lives in America? 78, okay. So your dad, and maybe he's above average, but say he lives for eight more years. You're like, okay, I've got eight more years with my dad. But then you realize, wait a second, I only see my dad four times a year. So then you do that math, eight times four. You go, oh my goodness. I may only see my dad 32 more times before he dies. What should I do with that time? Well, how about starting by honoring him? How about telling him and your mom, mom says, well, how much they mean? Here's the second thing about honoring. How do you honor your parents? You live a life worthy of the sacrifice and suffering they put in to raise you. That's something really worth thinking about for like a year. It's like, wait a second, you know, because some of you, you're doing nothing with your life. And you need, you need to be, you know, you need a lot of motivations. You need the gospel and all that. You need to wake up at two in the morning sometime and just go, what am I doing? It's like your parents changed your diapers. They fed you in the middle of the night. They, they raised you and, and, and gave you a house for 18 years. They educated you. Some of you, it's like, they also paid for all of your costs. Like they gave you everything. And it cost them an enormous amount. And one thing you could do is look in the mirror every once in a while and go, is the life I'm living honoring that? The enormous suffering that my mom and dad put in to raise me. And that's partly how you honor your parents. Now back to parenting just for a second. We have to talk about this. It says, children, obey your parents. Now we flipped it. We say parents, obey your children. This is not good. We, we have to talk for a few minutes about parental authority which is hard for millennials. I know I pick on millennials, I'm a geriatric millennial, okay? It's hard for young people. This is, and I see this everywhere. I see this in business. I see this in the church world. I see this in the home. Millennials don't want anyone to be in charge. Can we do everything by consensus, please? Can we do teamwork? It's like, no, no, that is not leadership. It's like mom and dad, you're in charge. 
Christian Smith, who is a sociologist and is at Notre Dame, and so he's a really smart guy, professor at Notre Dame, all he does is study families. And he did a multi-year study in which he said, what, and he focused on Christian families. What type of Christian parenting is most effective? And after, I don't know, it's like a decade-long study, guess what he found? He said there's two things that must be present in the home. Number one, high expectation, high demand, high accountability. That was number one. Number two, an abundance of warmth, expressive care, and deep relationship. The temptation is to not bring both of those, but only one of those. If it's just warmth, it's gentle parenting. We talked about this earlier. It's, oh, you know, Timmy could do no wrong, right? And so you're at the school, and your teacher's like, hey, you know, Timmy's not doing well in this class. <gasps> not Timmy. What teaching style are you using? <laughs> and if you have enough money, you just bring them to a different school. That happens all the time. That's an abundance of warmth with not enough high expectation. If you have neither, the child is neglected. And that's why we have a foster care and adoption ministry, because that happens. If you have high expectation without warmth, you feel like you're in the prison or in military. You need to have both authority and affection in the home. And so some of you, the word to some of you parents is you need to have a conversation with yourself and with your spouse, and you need to say, I'm in charge. We're in charge. And we are going to lead this family because the Bible says that we are to instruct and discipline our kids and not provoke them. I want to talk a little bit about discipline because it's two of the words. There's only two words we're given as parents with what to do. We're told to do not one thing, don't provoke. And then we're told to do two things, instruct and discipline. So let's talk about those, okay? I know some of you, as soon as I talk about discipline, I know how some of you are. You go, we don't discipline Johnny. We know, okay, we know. (laughs) We've had him in kids ministry. We know you don't discipline him. Okay, so here's, here's, there's, there's different categories of discipline, okay? And I give these to you. And be led by your conscience, be led by scripture. You know, we, we don't believe in abuse and any of that kind of stuff, but discipline is a gift. And the Bible says that God disciplines every child he loves. And the Bible says, if you, if you this is what the proverb says, he who does not discipline his son hates him. I just quoted a Bible verse. So you have to understand discipline. There's a couple levels of discipline. There's reproof. Reproof is when you get eyeball to eyeball with your kid and you tell him in a warm but stern voice what he or she did wrong, why it was wrong, and what they need to do differently. And you'll have certain kids, and as soon as you do it, they'll collapse and melt. And you'll have other ones that are like, are you talking to me? (laughs) You're like, all right, next step, you know. After that, it's deprivation. Deprivation is I take something away from the child. Why don't parents practice deprivation? Answer, it makes their life more difficult. This is the dirty secret of parenting. Why will, you know, it's like, you know, and by the way, when you, when you do deprivation, here's the rule. Whatever you think you, however long you think you should take something away, you triple it. And it's like, okay, so here, here's what I do. It's like, okay, so, but if I say no TV for the rest of the week, then the mom thinks, oh, my two-hour window every day to work on my side hustle, right? Or to get rest or to sleep or to nap. And it's like, okay, and this is a principle, and I learned this from my wife. We discovered this. Um, 
the job of a parent is to suffer now so your kids don't have to suffer later. And a lot of parents don't want to suffer now so their kids will suffer later. You ever go to the restaurant, everyone's got a screen in front of them, it's like, oh, great. Good job, parent. You don't have to suffer now. But your kids will suffer the rest of their life because now they don't have the social skills and don't know how to behave at dinner. And your relationships will suffer because y'all don't know how to talk to each other. And you think you're going to turn that on at 15 years old when it hasn't been on for 10 years? You're not going to turn that on. You suffer now so your kids don't have to suffer later. You teach them good ha eating habits now. Well, why? Well, you could just let them eat sweets and snacks and sugar all day. And you wouldn't suffer because they wouldn't whine and complain, but they will suffer. They will be unhealthy. And then they will have all this addiction to food that they shouldn't have, which will make their life very difficult, and then they'll go off to college and indulge in all that. You suffer now so that other people, so that your kids don't have to suffer later. Um, and so what, what you need to do is you need to embrace your parental authority. Let me give you a couple practicals that I think are helpful. And Margie and I learned these from other people. We're not this smart, but I'm going to give you some good ones here. The first is save no for the big things. Don't have a lot of rules. Have a lot of relationship. Don't have a lot of laws. Have a lot of love. Make sure that everything you're saying no to actually needs to be said no to because here's a rule about rules. Does that make sense? A rule about rules. Bad rules make people not respect good rules. So if every rule you have, it's like, well, man, that makes sense. That's a good reason. If that's a good rule, and there's not a lot of them, and I think I could do this. It's like, well, then people will respect them. This is why I don't like going to the swimming pool. You ever go to the swimming pool? It's like you show up, it's like 42 rules of what not to do in the pool. I'm like, this list is ridiculous. What bureaucracy put this together? I'm like, I'm only obeying one of those rules. I'm not diving in the shallow end. That's it. <laughs> the rest of those rules are goofy. Who put them there? You know, it's like it makes you not respect the rules that you should follow because there's so many goofy rules that you're like, who made this? You get it. So the, the second thing, and this, this one's actually really important, and this has been the thing that most people have talked to me about after the sermon so far. Here it is. A couple years ago, uh, there was a family in my last church with uh, seven kids. There's multiple families, actually, in my last church that had seven kids. I don't know if they all just thought, okay, we could be a baseball team. Let's stop, you know? But they, they, had, they had, anyway. And so there was this one family. They were especially exemplar. And I said to them, you know, what I say to people when I, when I admire them? I would like to be like you. Tell me how you do this. Because all their kids were, like, amazing. Like, all of them, all seven of them. I said, what'd you do? And she kind of sheepishly said to me, win the battle at the dining room table. And I never forgot that. Because the dining room table, in some sense, I mean, you want to see who's in charge at a home? Go visit them at dinner. It's a microcosm for life. It's like, do they do your, and it's different based on their ages, okay? But do they know how to sit through a meal? Do they eat everything that you give them? Do they know how to make eye contact? Do they know how to have a conversation? Do they know how to have a conversation that's not centered on them? Do they know how to ask questions? Do they know how to engage a guest? Do they know how to, Stay seated. Do they know how to clean up? Do they know how to help? It's like, oh my gosh. You could spend six months perfecting the dining room experience and it would probably have an impact on all of their life. So there's reproof, there's deprivation, there's isolation. Isolation is when you say, go to your room or go to the steps. And here's the rule on isolation. You say to your kids, you can come back when you're ready to be a full part of this family again. And that's the best way to say something because it will make them learn how to regulate their emotional system. And they'll go, you'll see them like if they're like three years old, they're like fighting on the, you know. And they're, they're trying to get it under control. They're trying to, okay, okay, okay this isn't, I want to go back. I want to be with my family. 
And here's the amazing thing. Do you want to know when you can tell if they really want to be part of the family? When they come back, you'll like them. It's weird. You can tell when it's fake. You can tell when they're just trying to get out of something. And you can tell when they've really integrated it in themselves and said, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I'd like to be part of the family again. Well, come on back, man. We're in. And we're not going to, that's another rule of discipline. We're not going to keep talking about this. Some of you do that. It's like, okay, cold shoulder for you for three hours. It's like, none of that. None of keep, no, no, you're not bringing it back up again and again. No, you're not telling all the other kids in the house about it. No, you're not doing any of that. It's like, the, 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 fourth, the fourth thing is logical consequences. Or what we like to say in our home, that's what you get for doing that, okay? <laughs> in other words, if you broke it, you buy it. I mean, I remember our kids broke this thing from Ikea and it cost $3 and I was like, guys, this is really expensive. Like, oh. You know, $3 to a kid is a ton of money. They each had to go get a dollar from the room. And then the final is the rod, which I know some people are very sensitive about the rod, but the Bible's very clear about the rod. There's something, the rod is a rescue mission. There's something that words don't get at in the human heart. And the Bible speaks, I would encourage you to do a study on your own about the importance of the rod. Now, when we, get, when we talk about the rod or spanking, we like to call them reminders. Now, why? Because if you say to your kid at the grocery store, you're getting a reminder. He'll scream, not a reminder! And then social services doesn't come to your house. <laughs> You're going to have to figure out discipline. Here, here's, here's the final word. Don't provoke your kids. So, there's, so men have, a, fathers have a certain pathology and mothers have a certain pathology. The pathology of dad is to provoke, to tease. Provoke means to make to exasperate, to make unnecessarily angry. Um, let me just give you a couple ways dads provoke. Dads provoke, one, actually, by disciplining without first instructing. The kid's like, what the heck? I didn't know, I didn't know that was wrong. You're disciplining for something I didn't know. That'll exasperate a kid. Uh, being a hypocrite, right? It's like, uh, and, and by the way, your kids will feel hypocrisy at like age five or six. They'll be able to articulate it about 10 or 11 and they'll resent you as teenagers for it which is dad is different at church, like really different. Like he's, he uses the whole religious language and he's really nice and he shakes and he prays for people and blah, blah, blah. And then he gets in the car and screams at us. And they'll resent you for it. And they'll, they'll, it'll be one of the reasons they'll think Christianity is a game that you're playing that they don't want to play. That's not a fun game to play. And they'll find a different thing to do on Sundays. Um, another thing is being inconsistent. This, is, this can happen with mom or dad. It's like, well, which mom are we getting and which dad are we getting? You know, is this drunk dad? Is this angry dad? Is this lonely dad? Is this tired dad? Is this stressed out dad? Is this happy dad? Is this easygoing dad? Is this flip out on everything dad? I can't, which dad am I getting? It's too much for me. I, I have to know. Oh, vicariously living through your kids. That'll be another one. You know, people, they'll notice that by the time they're a teenager too. It's like, dad, I, look, just because you didn't do everything you wanted to do in life doesn't mean I now have to do it for you. And it's overwhelming. And it's another reason homes are child-centered. Homes are child-centered because I have to live my life through you. So you have to be the center and you'll now do what I want you to do. You will play baseball. You will go to the type of school I could never get into. You will do it. You will like it. That'll exasperate kids. Moms have their own pathology. It's protecting. It's overprotecting. It's something that moms need to watch out for, especially moms who don't have a good relationship with their husband. Freud noticed this. The worse your relationship is with the husband, the more you try to find in your son what you can't find in your husband. Not sexually, but in other areas. And so this, I've seen this many times. Women who do not have good relationships with their husband 
try to keep their son in the home as long as possible. And they say, well, they don't say this out loud, but they basically say some version of this, please stay here and I will take care of you. Let's make a deal. Let's not say it out loud, but let's make a deal. You never have to grow up. And I never have to stop being your mom. Stay. And so what mom and dad do is they have, they constantly, across the whole life of their child, they push on each other to make sure neither of those do that. And the, the wife's always saying to the husband, you're being too hard on them. And half the time she's right and half the time she's wrong. And the husband's always saying to the wife, you're, quit protecting them. So let them get out in the world. And half the time he's right and half the time he's wrong. And you have to talk about this again and again and again. And here's the whole thing, guys. We talked about it. We got we to gotta close. Let, let me just say this. This is, this is an issue where, look, our, in your parenting, you will see the best and worst of yourself. There will be time, you, I've seen it in, in being a parent now for 12 years. It's like, I see the best of myself and the worst of myself in parenting. And this is why, this is where I want to end with, the, par the parent that parents best is the parent that repents the most. So believe it or not, after this message last night, I was out to dinner with some people and they had some cornhole and my kids were there. And my son, William, who's nine, said, Dad, can we play cornhole? And I was talking to some guys and I said, in a little bit, in a little bit. And some other things happened. He came back over and he said, Dad, can I play cornhole? And I said, in a little bit. And he came back over again. And I finally said, man, it's late. I don't have time to play cornhole. Because I've been talking to those guys. But I told him I'd play cornhole. Well, I watch him go over to the picnic table and he starts crying. And I'm like, dude, did I just mess up after giving the parenting talk? <laughs> but I did what I've done a hundred times. I just went over to him and I said, man, listen. I, I said, guys, got, you know, I was talking to some guys. I got to go. Over, I, go Dude, I go, William, I am so sorry. I, told, I broke my promise to you. Will, I'd love to play cornhole now. Will you forgive me? And he goes, you know, through tears, yes. Well, by the way, what you'll find, especially while your kids are young, is it's a unique grace of God. They will so quickly forgive you. So quickly. And then the gospel will become very real for them. Because it's like, man, the same grace that I'm talking about, you know, Jesus and grace and Bible, it's like, daddy needs all that. Mommy needs all that. The, the dad is a sinner. And I need the grace of God. So I don't know wherever you are, guys. Some of you, here's the word. If you're a child under 18, you can hear me. You're in this room. Here's the word of God to you today. Submit. The one thing, we're not told much about Jesus when he was a child. But the thing we're told in Luke 2 is that he went home, he submitted to everything his parents said. And the next verse says, and he grew. And he grew in wisdom, stature, favor with God and man. The, the verse before that says he submitted to his parents. Submission is a portal to health and growth. For some of you, you need to honor your parents. You know, it's hard to honor your, some of us, it's hard to honor our parents for some things that have happened. The first picture in the Bible of honoring parents is when Noah gets off the ark, he gets drunk and he's naked. Do you know the story? And his one son, Ham, looks at him and laughs and tells his brothers. That's dishonor and shame. And the other two brothers, they come together, they grab a cloth and they walk backwards to cover their dad's nakedness. It's the first picture of honor in the Bible. You're gonna have to figure out how to honor your imperfect parents and here's how you do that. And every adult knows this. Here's how you need to think about your parents. This is the mature view of your parents. My parents did the best they could with what they knew and had. And that is most people's experience. 
And that's going to be your experience. You want to say, I believe in the grace of God, and I did the best I could with what God gave me, and I'm going to trust the grace of God for the future. Because in two weeks, we're starting a new series in Joseph. And guess what we know about Joseph? He came from one of the most dysfunctional families in the Old Testament, and he's one of the greatest men who ever lived. And that's our hope. If you need help, we want to walk with you. We want to parent best by repenting most. Let's pray. Lord, thank you, Jesus, for this time. We've got parents and children. We need to honor and obey. There's a lot in the text. We, get, we didn't even get him to talk to work a lot, Lord. I just, I, this is a moment for us as a church because parenting is such a great joy. I've, I've heard it said that for most people, their greatest accomplishment will not be something they do, but someone they raise. And we just thank you. I, I pray right now for parents who, uh, who just feel stuck, who feel anxious, who feel discouraged, that, you would, that they'd open up to one family, one person to help them. Lord, I pray for people in this room who desire to be parents or struggle with infertility. We pray you'd give them the grace and the blessing of children. And I pray especially for single moms who when we talk about the tension of work and the tension of family, it's just constant for them. And they feel that, Lord. And I pray for a special grace on single moms trying to do two jobs and be two people at once. We pray for grace. Ask it for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.